Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Okay, good evening everybody. Um, my name is Russell Storer and I'm the Curatorial Manager um, of Asian and Pacific Art here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. And I'd like to begin this evening by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we meet upon this evening and uh, pay respects to the elders past and present. I'd like to acknowledge Ms. Archana Singh, um, Indian, Honorary Indian Consul General in Brisbane, and Dr. Ashutosh Mistra, Griffith Asia Institute. Apologies tonight are from Griffith University Chancellor Ms. Lenin Ford, Vice Chancellor and President Professor Ian O'Connor, Professor Andrew O'Neill, Director of Griffith Asia Institute, and Maud Page, Deputy Director of Curatorial and Collection Development at the Queensland Art Gallery. This evening marks our third Perspective Asia for 2013. Perspectives Asia is an initiative of the Queensland Art Gallery and the Griffith Asia Institute, established in 2005 and presents a dynamic and wide-ranging series of lectures which investigate contemporary politics, society and culture in our region. As always, I'd like to thank Andrew, Natasha Berry, and the team at the Griffith Asia Institute, as well as Ruth McDougall, the Gallery's Curator of Pacific Art, for their commitment to and support for this important program. Perspectives Asia tonight forms part of the Ties That Bind Us Symposium, organised in tandem with the Encounters India Festival. I'd like to thank the Queensland Conservatorium of Griffith University for the invitation to be part of the festival, in particular Vincent Flush, Nicholas Onion and Rhiannon Phillips. It's a very special edition of Perspectives Asia tonight, featuring three wonderful speakers from very different disciplines. In response to the topics of the symposium over today and tomorrow, which looks at cultural diplomacy, intercultural collaboration and the relationship between India and Australia, the panel will explore the changing nature of contemporary Indian identity and how it asserts its cultural place in the world. We're very honoured to have three such exceptional speakers this evening to discuss these ideas. Shubha Mudgal is based in New Delhi and is a leading performer and composer of Hindustani classical music, particularly Kaya and Dumri, as well as pop music. She was born into an academic and musical family in Allahabad and studied there and in Delhi with some of the finest musicians and musicologists in India. She's received numerous awards, including the Padma Shri from the Indian Government in 2000 and the Gold Clark Award for Special Achievement in Music at the 34th Chicago Film Festival in 1998. She has also been closely involved in music education in India and is currently a member of the Central Advisory Board of Education. Please join me in welcoming Shiva Mukha. Dr. Anapama Kundu, in the middle here, is a Brisbane-based architect who is senior lecturer in the School of Architecture at the University of Queensland. Her innovative architectural practice features a strong focus on material research and sustainable architecture. Dr. Kundu has worked as an architect around the world, including Oroville in South India, Berlin in the area of social housing, and for the European Commission project um, between Barcelona, London and Haryana in India. She has taught architecture and urban management in schools of architecture in London, Berlin and New York and recently presented the project Wall House at the Venice Architecture Biennial in 2012. Please welcome Anna And thirdly, Anna Sharma is a Sydney-based filmmaker, author and international consultant on Indian cinema. He's a director of films in Casting Temple, which provides casting, consultancy and production services for the Indian film industry in Australia. He was an ambassador for Australia Day 2013 and was recently nominated as one of the 50 most influential professionals in the Australian film industry. He was chief judge and advisor to the SBS reality TV show Bollywood Star and has worked on over 200 Bollywood productions. 
Please welcome Anna Panchar. So I'm just, um, just a bit of housekeeping. I'm going to ask um, each panelist to talk briefly for about five minutes or so um, about their backgrounds and their work um, with the panel topic in mind. And then we'll have about 30 minutes of discussion between us and then we'll throw open the um, questions to the floor. So just to sketch out the territory a little bit to start. The rise of India as an economic and political power, the role of culture, in essence soft power, in expressing Indian history, society and values has been significant. Be it Bollywood cinema, prize-winning literature, classical and contemporary art, and music from Ravi Shankar to A.R. Raman, as well as Indian cuisine. The title of the panel today, India Large and Small, is inspired by an essay by Indian economist Amartya Sen, who wrote of the dialectic between the large, liberal, inclusive, heterodox India of many cultures and faiths and the small, nationalist, sectarian India of the Hindutva movement. Together, these two extremes suggest the complexity of India today and its varied approaches to identity, which have implications not only in terms of politics, but of course also in the cultural sphere. What then is the face of India that is presented to the world, and how does it circulate and interact globally? Is it a singular national identity, or one made up of many regional and local identities? And how does art and culture translate its identities beyond its borders? So let's begin with Shubha. Thank you for... Uh giving me this opportunity to express my views and opinions. And of course, I must say that my work is restricted to music, and therefore I can't give you a, a sort of a pan-Indian vision of culture and arts, but my experience is based largely with music, both traditional and uh, popular um, in India. And I'd, I would have to say that the question that you sent me was, how does India assert itself with, with regard to culture? And when you use the word assert, I would have to say that the only area in which India can assert itself in, you know, with some strength is from Bollywood and the music that arises from Bollywood. And yes, because that's the presence um, that is in a sense becoming all pervasive. I would have to also say that we're very proud of the, the success of Bollywood and Bollywood music. So there is no sense of sort of feeling let down because of that. And at the same time, there is a, a rising concern amongst a lot of people in India that Bollywood cannot be the only representation of India. It has to be as diverse as India herself is. And in terms of cultural expression, it is even more diverse than perhaps we could imagine while we are sitting here. It is said of India that in, as you move across India in every few kilometers you come across a new dialect, you come across a new form of musical expression and it would be a pity if all of those failed to be celebrated in the manner which, is, which I think we should be able to do in these days of easy communication. Today communication has become so easy fortunately that people sitting across the world don't actually need to cross political and geographical boundaries, we don't need passports actually on the internet usually unless a restraint is put there but we can actually enjoy each other's culture and art very freely and, and we are fortunate to be in that age and yet a lot of Indian art and music in particular remains neglected because of the fact that those areas, those genres, those forms don't really have a voice in today's world where a lot of space is bought and sold. The one area that does have the power is of course Bollywood. The other area which has tried to assert a cultural identity is, it comes from the area of policy making. 
that is the government. And the government has put in place several organizations and institutions that have worked um, since independence. They were put in place a little after independence, largely with a Nehruvian philosophy. And these include, let's say, the Sangeet Natak Academy, which is the premier organization um, funded by the government, but which functions autonomously, um, which, which, supports, which is supposed to support music, dance, and theater. Uh, there is the Ministry of Culture in the Government of India, a portfolio that I'm told is not at all coveted. Nobody wants it. Um, and, um, and there are also other organizations like, like uh, the IGNCA, the Indira Gandhi National Center for the Arts, which has done a major amount of work, but more in the academic area. But what happens in India usually, especially for musicians, it was the government that was supporting a lot of music and dance and performing arts. And the other area of support came from the recording industry. And there was a time in India when when all kinds of music were recorded. When the recording technology came to India, and the first musical recordings were made in 1902, and thereafter, we see that a lot of different kinds of music were recorded. In fact, not just music, sound was recorded. So you had, you had records of street, uh, people selling wares on streets even. Street sounds were recorded, speeches were recorded. All kinds of music, people uh, who were singing Kavali, Ghazal, there was a huge diversity that was covered by recording technology. And the people who brought in the recording technology actually thought fit to exploit that diversity because they felt that there would be a listener for everything. From, I think in the last two decades, I would not be unjustified in saying that the recording industry has completely stopped supporting anything else but mainstream film music of a particular kind. It has to be the item number the danceable number, and more recently, interestingly, in a conversation with a very well-known celebrated film composer, I was startled by what he said when he said that now it's not about the item number, it's about the catchy ringtone. So your song must actually be, say what it has to, much cat, must catch the attention in 10 seconds, no more, and otherwise your song is dead. So that's the kind of support that or the lack of it that we see from the recording industry. Fortunately, as I said earlier, the internet technology has really made it possible for people to empower themselves with the ability to record, publish, and distribute themselves. I'm part of a large number of Indian musicians who have decided that yes, we will record for the mainstream industry if they invite us to on our terms and conditions, and if not, we will record ourselves and distribute our works independently on terms and conditions that we set for ourselves. I must also remind you that a lot of musicians in India, including me, I am a first generation musician, I don't come from a family of musicians, and, and therefore, in a sense, uh, the, the area is new for me in more than one way, but any amount of training that we get in music does not equip us with an idea of how to actually conduct the business of music. We spend years at the feet of a guru, or more than one guru, and we spend hours and days and weeks and years learning the complexity and, and the nuances of, of whatever genre we are studying. But nobody tells us that when you go into a recording studio, you should know how to read a contract. It's not about 
literacy alone. It's about actually being able to understand how to read a legal contract or then have support in the form of a legal manager or an artist manager or an agent who actually represents you. A large number of Indian artists are not represented by any support staff. So at best you could have if you're very celebrated, you may have a spouse or a, or a child or a sibling who manages your finances for you. But as we all know that in the arts, it's not just about the fee that you get, but a larger vision of what will keep your work and your strengths going for a longer time. Unfortunately, that system is not in place. And so Indian artists very often are very vulnerable and very often unable. They're actually not equipped to be able to set terms and conditions for the sharing of their knowledge. This is not to say that, I mean, ignorance is, is not something that can just be wished away. But I think in terms of presenting culture to the rest of the world, perhaps the policymakers in India have an area which they have not looked at. We need awareness programs. We need awareness programs not only for artists but also to help uh, present Indian culture overseas. Otherwise, from the smallest little detail about what kind of microphones you want, what kind of seating you want. I mean, uh, fortunately for us, for Anish and me, there is the possibility of actually sending information, let's say when we come, we've come to Griffith and to, to Encounters India, we've, we've sent a lot of material about what kind of microphones we want, what kind of seating we want. But it's the most common thing in the world to go to another country and find that people usually stand and sing as opposed to us who are seated on the floor so you are on a stage uh, beautifully a beautiful space with beautiful sound but you have six foot high mics which are sticking which are sort of you know pointing down at you and it just looks it looks very unesthetic but the idea of having infrastructure of having information and, and telling people how to present Indian music, uh, make it comfortable both for the audience as well as for the artists. Unfortunately, that's an area that hasn't been looked at. And as we go on, you know, travel across the world is becoming fraught with a lot of difficulties. As Asian, as artists from Asia, we face a lot of problems when we apply for performers' visas. We are looked at with a lot of suspicion. Uh, heaven help us, there are some communities, if, if I was traveling with a musician from a certain community, the questions in my visa application would increase and the number of questions in my interview time would increase and I would probably be told, sorry, can't go. And unfortunately, in these very pleasant surroundings of this beautiful space, it, I would have to say that these are areas which really need to be looked at, sorted out in a manner that, that, that offers security, which is required in today's day and age, but which is not disrespectful to the arts and artists. pictures speak louder than, you know, take less time than words. But I, I do want to say something before that in response to your general theme, India large and small, 
what came up in my mind and it's, I, it's not, I'm not a normal person to quote from Upanishads and all that as you can see but I, I, I must say that this there is uh, trying to having been raised in a very modernist kind of approach and I have no nostalgic uh, leanings towards India but I, I I'm, I'm as Indian as, as anyone else you know um, and I've tried, been trying to find out what I can bring from there you know and it's this sentence from the Upanishads, which is a very basic uh, thing, I heard it over and over again, very timeless, Vasudeva Kutumbakam, which means that the earth is but one family. And I think for me, I would say that represents Indianness or uh, an Indian attitude. When I would, now that I'm, I've traveled and lived and uh, worked in so many places, I would say what would I think and distinguishing my, you know, like it, it, I hate to generalize, but basically this sentence comes to mind because we are not, at, we are not uneasy about diversity. We don't feel like we have to find out what's the identity or whatever. Because when you say India large and small, the large is the whole earth, but it's the same as the one unit, you know, the one, it's the one earth and the one small unit, which is not, it's not about this region's identity and that, you know state or whatever, it's each unit, each person is very different. You know, we are all very different, but we are one family. And that one unit is anything, it's a species, it's a plant, it's an animal, but we are all one family because we inhabit the one earth. And that's the way I would see it. So the fact that we are not seeking any kind of hurried uniformity, it doesn't make us even worry us if others are struggling to find what our identity is. We are okay with the diversity. It's okay. You know, we are still connected. This is what I would say. So it's interesting that I'll just share one my latest work, which I presented in the Venice Biennale. It was a very, very, it was the biggest exhibit this year, like in terms of the space it occupied. And I, the theme of this year was common ground. So it, again, that, this is the link, this sentence for me, because, you know, it, I was trying to find what is the common ground. And I realized, I struggle with it because for me it's normal that I don't even need to have a topic like I see more commonality than difference when I go around, you know, and I, um, okay, so I mean when I moved from a big city in Bombay and I started living in Oroville, I, I started actually roaming around in rural areas to know my country because I had seen one aspect of it and I, the first project I did was to try to extend the livelihood of Potters of a certain region who were losing their, like every other craft, who were losing their livelihood to urbanism. And I thought, rather than using them decoratively, their work in museums and so on, that means you already accept that it's dead. Uh, it's better to, or decorate your walls, it's better to use them structurally and absorb them in urbanism so that they will only increase their opportunity. So I designed, started designing roofing systems that were sustainable. So, um, so I, I think got the potters who used to make cooking pots. I started uh, through engineering, I started incorporating, so sustainability for me was not just environmental footprint and all that, but uh, trying to not lose the wisdom and knowledge of communities and so on. And I started developing and, and even the so-called unskilled and so-called uneducated people, sharing all the engineering behind it with them and helping them to contribute to a contemporary solutions that are again timeless, you know, and that everybody, whichever level of development they are in, 
can relate and participate in an inclusive urbanization. So this is this is my own house in Oroville, which uh, for various reasons, and the reason I'm showing it is because it was one of the earliest research works where I tried and tested many housing solutions like you know integrated water management systems, uh, trying to cut down steel and high energy materials, building roofing systems with the local pots, which are actually engineering systems where you save about 40% steel and, uh, you know, but actually using the house to test larger projects where you could, you could contribute to more efficiency. So I did that kind of work and um, I tried to establish that a lot of things that the Western world is actually calculating like brick and uh, ceramic, they, are, they, they think it's a very high energy thing because it involves skin and fuel and all that. But in India, a lot of this is made through this kind of quality. So the fact that everything in the Western way of thinking needs to be always standardized, so we are very easily judging things as black and white, good and bad, and not looking into the areas of grey or qual the quality, where everything is actually ambiguous in that sense in India, and within it there is a lot to find out. And so I, I sort of, while I learned and I taught, I don't know, together we all developed a building systems that became alternatives to develop. And so because of the fact that the Venice space that was offered, and the whole of Venice is a brick city, I wanted them to re revisit bricks and understand that a brick is not a brick, and I thought a brick is a, can be the unit of common ground. It is the highest sophisticated material. It's the first material that was ever made in Mohenjo-daro and Agarpa. It, in India, it's still manufactured in pretty much the same technology. But others have done a high-tech approach. And maybe it's the high-tech approach that should be questioned in today's times of environment. We'll all be realizing the virtue of lower quality bricks, which are benign. So I thought of reconstructing the entire house, which was quite a feat because in six weeks, you know, in India, even the same people have taken, I don't know how many years, but the same people managed to do it in Europe in six weeks. I, I sort of wanted to show that, I wanted to show the point without posters and words that there is more in common than difference. That a thing that from, they were expecting my project to look very Indian, but in the end it looks more Venetian, you know, because it, you can't tell the difference from between their pillars and my pillars and everything melted into each other. So that's, that's the way I'm trying to say, like, no confrontation, just extending the, finding the common, commonality, and if you establish what is common, then you can celebrate the difference. Otherwise, there's a cat, like, you know, a kind of disharmony if you just start with the difference. So the commonality is important. And this is even the dining table was brought, you know, the whole house was, in fact, literally fused into this space, yeah, including the garden. And there were lots of uh, innovations in this as well, where you know these books were made with recycled bottles. We did all this research here, so we're trying to build the most with the least. And we worked over the three continents. We had students from Italy, um, you know, Australia, and India, and they didn't have a common language. And the engineers are fighting about everything, but the same gravity acts on all the three countries. I don't know why the laws are different. <laughs> so that's the common ground. And these are the people who have never left their villages. They came to Italy and worked beside all these people and produced this work. Yeah, I can end there, I think.
many hands make life work. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I am going to start with throwing a big stone and stay upon. Um, let's go back to 1950s, 60s, and Ralph Kapoor, the teenage Bollywood icon, had a song which loosely translated meant that I have got an English hand, trousers, I've got Japanese shoes, I've got Russian hat, but my heart is still in here. Cut that to now, and I quote uh, from Sotin Rai, who wrote in her 2009 thesis, Indian cinema is changing. A hip Baku, who wears a Rado watch, Gucci perfume, takes vacations in France, has light blue eyes, and looks somewhat British in his skin tone, has replaced the traditional dark-skinned moustache and Bollywood protagonist, who looks like the everyday Indian and has struggled against social injustices in a post-colonial developing country. Today, Bollywood's self-representation and its representation of Indian society, some call it misrepresentation of Indian society, and culture are changing in an effort to produce a commodity which fits the paradigms of global consumerism and simultaneously appeals to the globalized audience. In short, the shift in consumers of Bollywood films has signified a transition within the bounds of the film itself, highlighting the distinct effect globalization has had on Bollywood films." And to cut a long story short, the way in which Bollywood represents India is now the global standard by which people associate India and Indians. A classic example of that happened not far ago, uh, and just last week, about 60 kilometers south of Brisbane and Gold Coast, where Tourism Queensland and Tourism Australia literally remote control directed a song and dance sequence uh, featuring two of the biggest stars. It had nothing to do with Indian identity. It had, in a way. It had nothing to do with Bollywood, but it had, in a way. It all boiled down to how Tourism Queensland and Tourism Australia can tap into the growing consumer base of India as tourists. And Bollywood, which, um, which is a segment of Indian cinema, and I, and I clarify that, that enough, it is a segment of Indian cinema, a romanticized version of what India should be, uh, is driving that. Whether it's a force to reckon with or not, uh, whether it's a myth or reality, that's yet to be debated. Um, but Bollywood representing India, defining Indian identity, based on, at times, of corporate aims and objectives from the West, is a major serious issue now. Songs are being filmed in areas because grants are being given by tourism departments so that tourists can come to that area. Products are in place, whole films are shot in a country. And that is whole, the whole paradigm tourism, identity, culture uh, mix. It's 100 years of Indian cinema. When movies first came to Mumbai, which was just weeks after Dunia Brothers first exhibited them in France, the biggest difference philosophically, structurally, uh, thematically, creatively, was that West was extremely excited that it could see movie images. Indians were extremely excited because they could see music on the screen. And that fundamental difference has carried Indian cinema.
to where we are today. Uh, film industry, including Bollywood, including regional cinema, including art house cinema, which has withstood the Hollywood invasion for the last hundred years. Not because of technical finesse, uh, not because of a huge following, not because of its escape culture, but the single most important constituent of Indian cinema, music and songs and dances. It has withstood the Hollywood invasion, but corrupted by consumer desires from the West, it has also presented the most corrupt form of Indian cinema, which is Bollywood. And what that does is that it gets inspired versions of Hollywood films, creates a romanticized version of so-called pseudo-Indian identity, falling far behind in international respect at times, in international recognition at times. Shiva mentioned the item number. Um, for the uninitiated, an item number in Indian films is a song and dance sequence unlike the original traditions of song and dance which used to carry the narrative forward. An item number is a marketing ploy, similar to putting gold coast tourism or gold coast in a film. And it has got, really got relation to the rest of the narrative. It is catchy, sometimes getting 10 second tunes for, for the mobile. People go, people watch it, they get titillated by it, um, uh, they enjoy it, they hum the tune, but it has no relevance for the rest of the narrative. In a recent book I was a part of, um, that is what I have tried to, to, not so much to prove, but, but try to say that Bollywood has unfortunately, or fortunately for some, become an item number on the international film scene. People go to Bollywood, they look at it, oh wow, it's novel, it's unique, but in, in, in the Olympics of cinema, in the international objective, uh, non-corrupt, non-nepotistic film industries of the world, after the art film movement died, Indian cinema has, has failed to achieve the glory except for the last two years. Why, how is yet to be decided, a uh, lot of juries are still out there, but uh, thankfully it is the same consumerism which corrupted Bollywood, which is coming back and supporting uh, what, what you call um, first-generation filmmakers or artists. And, uh, one of my favorite themes has been um, Western body in Indian soul. Uh, Shubha mentioned about artists in India not being managed and, and, and the management not being there. One of the things which consumerism has brought, and as Westerners have gone to India to tap into the potential of Bollywood or consumer, is it's thankfully bringing a Western body without affecting the Indian soul. And I give a class example of a production house called Excel Entertainment, which did a cult film called Dil Chahata Hai, uh, which is bringing Western structures of management, of legalities, of transparent accounting, of uh, production structures, of first ages, second ages, without losing the Indian soul of music, of art. And that is now uh, being further modified to include independent cinema. Uh, cinemas like Gangs of Asset, uh, cinemas like Shanghai which are on the fringes of Bollywood, but are from the Indian film cinema flag at Cannes, at, at, at Toronto and other places. So that's where we stand, at a concentric circle on where the consumerism, the corporate desires of the West, or any desires for that matter, trying to force Bollywood uh, to, to follow their diktat, to put products, to put everything from, from artists through the products, through the locations as product placement, 
Um, and the same thing uh, kind of also in, in the other sense, helping out providing Western body to a film industry which has hitherto the film industry one of the biggest and one of the oldest. It was only 15 years ago it got the status of an industry. It wasn't even an industry. No insurances, no assurances, no unions, nothing. So it stands, Bollywood stands amidst as, as an item number amidst this huge Indian cinema, Indian arts, Indian music, trying to be the force um, which people love. People go and tend uh, and to quote a journalist from Financial Review who was doing a and, and that might be the end of, of what I want to say. And that explains everything. Uh, she was doing a story on, on coal mines being sold in Queensland. And she called me for a quote and I said, but you don't write on the film. She writes on the film. She goes, I, I know, I know, but if I get a Bollywood term in there or a nice photograph of a story might be from page 71, big one. And, and that is what Bollywood is doing. It's carrying it, it keeps for what power it has, um, uh, whether it's a misuse or use of power, is is highly debatable and is being debated about all around the world. Mm. Thank you. I wanted to pick up on something that you said, Shiva, and then what you've sort of picked up as well in terms of professionalism and the, um, the way the Western body, I suppose, is coming, you know, start with infrastructure. I mean, Shiva, do you see that as a solution or potential solution for the problems you see um, in the music um, industry? No, I think uh, uh, an understanding of the different forms of music in India would be very vital. If you got uh, a professional who does not understand the nature of Indian music in all its diversity, I think we will see a lot of problems and I think that is happening across the world. For example, we are asked to perform Hindustani classical music and then we are asked to hand over the rights of that performance in perpetuity worldwide for use in any format. How can I do that when I don't own that rag that I'm going to sing? I don't know who owns it. Yes, I could in certain situations say that the composition that I'm singing perhaps belongs to my guru or to me or to another great musician. But in effect, the, the, the actual elements of that music do not belong to anybody. And so how can I give to you the right to use something which I never owned in the first place. Or for example, I, I would also, I don't have documentary proof of this, but I think it's a fairly well-established example that I would like to share with you. In a very, very successful film in India, was featured a Rajasthani folk song, uh, which belonged to a community of hereditary musicians from Rajasthan. The song in question is Nimbuda Nimbuda. It was in a film called... Um, Ham Del De Chuke Sanam, made by a leading filmmaker with a leading music composer. Now it was registered, the song was registered as belonging, as being a work of that composer. And uh, because it was part of a film, it became the, the producer-director's property. And then he sold the rights to a particular record label, and so it became the um, property of that record label. A couple of years later, that the Rajasthani artists from that Rajasthani community were to sing in Europe and in a program that actually featured film music as well. When they sent the track list that they were going to present and it said Nimbuda Nimbuda, they were asked to pay royalty to the record label that owned the, the music. 
so i think you know i think the the problem is much larger i think the problem is that the issues that we are talking about have arisen as a result of the financial gains and benefits that accrue from the use of this work what we need and also from the manner in which arts are viewed today across the world arts are part of the entertainment industry i think that terminology is flawed how can all art be entertaining and how can all art be an industry i mean artists make artistic works because they can't help themselves whether they starve to death or whether they they are large like me or small like anyone else but they make that work because they're compelled to that's in their nature whether or not they it becomes a work that brings them financial gain and i wish to to the, i mean i wish that they it would but i think that looking upon um, arts as entertainment and as an industry is a flawed concept and we can only arrive at a ethical solution if we also look at the other very important aspect now i don't even want to believe that this 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 director or the composer actually wanted to that there, there was any malintention on their part but if they were to pay who would they pay because this is community knowledge who would they pay they, there is no community uh, sort of uh, organization or union that would accept the money uh, so, and, and i think it's more a question for me as a student of music i think what is important is for me to know that this song that featured in hamdil de chuke sanam was so so well loved across the world that the original source belongs to community knowledge from rajasthan and i think that documentation is far more important unfortunately that docu however professional you are the moment there is the lucre involved uh, people are going to say no it's mine no i better keep it i better word it this way so that it belongs to me so i think no amount of professional handling is going to actually help document ethically Uh, the source from which you are taking and i think in communities where traditional knowledge is respected we need to look at an alternative to this i don't think it's going to work if a very very well known agent or a, a company comes into india they're not bothered you know we've dealt with them i've uh, had the opportunity to sing and to compose for some very well known uh, filmmakers from across the world and the experience has led to uh, my being very cynical about this because there is no question they want to own it and they will not stop till you have signed on the dotted line saying that this now belongs to them so i don't think it's a question of just the professional management i think we need to really all relook at the manner in which we interpret this aware of their hunger to own represent the people who are being asked to give it away um, you know the the tussle between goddess saraswati and lakshmi's age or yes. and they, they continue to remain <coughs> but, but what i meant to say yeah, absolutely right they don't understand but what i meant to say was that if an artist in india are being approached by western professional things asking them to hand over um, having equally knowledgeable of their gain people represent them would be a band-aid solution you're absolutely right it can't be resolved till till the whole ethics till the whole aspect of industry vis-a-vis entertainment vis-a-vis art is resolved um until then we only have band-aid you know nothing else but on the other hand the question is whether one should actually have to 
accept that as a norm and therefore create our similar structures, then the whole world will become reduced. You know, the ideas of of collectivism and non-ownership are things that we have to bring back in the world if we want to save the planet. You know, in terms of sustainability and all that. From many other places, you know, these kind of policies are being introduced because, in fact, the fact that people own things has actually led to is going to lead to a further bottleneck and deadlock. And yes. even in software, as you see now, things are getting liberal. So I don't know if it is. It's true that we are facing all of this, but it's really questionable whether who has actually who is that original who has not built on the knowledge of others. Exactly. 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 You know, even in the so-called ownership, you know, where you, we, we, because the point is that that's the whole idea of, of a global dialogue. We don't have to accept the development that of those who are ahead yes. in their governance structures. You know, the point is that there are ancient cultures who've managed peacefully for a long time Absolutely. without feeling greedy or needing, you know, you cannot, uh, no, no matter how much you regulate, there are more lawyers who are going to come <laughs> in and, you know, it's never going to be like, I bought the rights and it's fine. It's not, it's not so simple. Do you feel that, like you mentioned, the, the rise of technology and the ability to communicate more broadly has, um, I mean, there's a lot of potential there to make, um, to share that knowledge, to, to record that knowledge, to circulate it and distribute it beyond India or to make that more. And do you see possibilities there? I mean, you mentioned the other day that there were certain structures within um, certain programs and app applications that did limit safer recording of long Yes. Terms, but do you see um, other potentials there? Yes, the sharing has become really very, very easy. I think the will to share and the will to acknowledge, if that is there, then I think nothing can really stop us. But I think both have to exist in every single collaborator, if I could put it that way. If I have to be, if I have to hear a a piece of music in this festival and say how wonderful and then I need to I, I build on that for a new composition I have to be able to first say that look I'm building on that and and then perhaps contact I don't really need professional help in that sense it is possible really to make communication across the world with anyone but the will to say that this is not mine and or I'm taking it from here and I'm documenting that this is not mine if I'm if I'm acknowledging it just in, inside my head and I'm not willing to say it I think uh, both things have to be uh, fairly and squarely uh, you know stated and and if that is possible then I think a lot of wonderful work can happen and more than the work and more than the the production of an event or a book or a CD or an album or anything I think it's the ability to share information and knowledge that will become so so exciting and so um, what a vibrant uh, world we might be living in then. Twitter followers, 
we have got Twitter followers which can you can share things with them. You can do all kinds of uh, you know, social media. You don't need any gatekeepers. You can communicate with your followers. And then you have the recent um, Australian uh, scenario of cash for comments on Twitter. We had a very famous personality who had high Twitter following, uh, tweeted about Kangaroo Island, how wonderful it is. And the next day they found out that this guy is being paid $5,000 for every time he tweets about something. So, so it's, you, know, you can use it and you can misuse it. And the same thing could happen for, Twitter, you know, for, for things which are going viral, for music which is going viral. You know. uh, you know, there are people who would use those things. There are people who can misuse and pick up. There's so many wonderful folk songs and, and rural themes and tunes and music, which someone sitting in New York or, or Delhi or Bombay can just pick up, get his ownership, get it out there, and then sell it to a mobile phone company just because his YouTube has had one million hits. Um, so it, 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 it kind of, it, it helps, but it only helps if you want to use it, not misuse it, uh, which, is, which is the same with everything. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, people anyway use, they just, uh, then they package it in all sorts of ways, but it doesn't, it's not that because there are these copyrights and other people stop using, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, you know, who has been born on a clean slate, you know, I don't know who's this, who, who has not been influenced a lot by everybody, I, I, I personally don't relate to this, but, you know, like, like for instance, uh, even when you know when you hear about Ayurvedic uh, recipes having patented by some companies in the U.S. or you know even in our sort of uh, thinking, I, I, the reason I I showed my work and I showed it as a collective work is because I don't know who you know the Romans in fact invented some of those vaulting systems which then got further um, when some other civilizations flourishing their projects and palaces took it further and then somebody else. So if you go to the real origin, it's just uh, an illusion, you know, those who think they have invented things, you know, I, I don't believe in this approach. And I, I hope that through this kind of dialogue, you know, um, we, we have to acknowledge that we are not, we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. We, we are part of a larger flow of things in time. And I think, I think a lot of greed is behind all of this. I, I don't think it's so much about, even in universities and all, you, you see that we are supposed to credit everybody and all of that. One is, you know, like I see a lot of photographers, you know, fighting for the right kind of credits, but they are going and photographing all those poor people and using their images. Have they taken each model release of those beggars they have, you know, captured on the screen? And they have their name and they, you know, so the question is, those people will never know their rights because, and they don't necessarily have those values. So, um, and they don't mind that their life is transitional, you know, it's not about, I think this is an illusion to think that, um, you know, the people are insecure, so they need to, to define that, they have to convince themselves that they actually did something. <laughs> These sound people just feel they're not good enough and they want more and more, like, uh, I don't know, some confirmation from the society and they do all this crazy thing, that's my opinion. But I think basically, I, I think in architecture, because I, I'm a bit surprised, uh, like, you know, how important in the Western, uh, you know, like you always know, even you don't know the names of the important collaborators, you know, just like the main guy's name. And you know that person's probably, those who've got these 200, 400 offices, how could they be 
actually sketching those ideas. So, so there are lots of people who contribute to things, you know, and that's why things get manifested. And I think, uh, but some parts of the world have established these things. So, but if you've lived in another world, you know that it's not so serious as it sounds like an establishment. So I also don't take it so serious. I've noticed in recent years there's been, certainly in the art world, there's been a great sort of interest in broadening our sense of the history of modernity, looking at other histories, not just the Euro-American history. Um, the Tate just recently did an exhibition of the Lebanese modernist artists, for example. Um, and I noticed that Charles Perea is having an exhibition um, in London, so they're looking at you know, architects as well. So, how do you, do you feel that the awareness um, is broadening and in the fields that you're involved with and that's it's deepening sort of outside of India, sort of ground? Is that something you've experienced? Do you think it's something that's just a short-term fashionable thing or something you feel may continue? No, I think for classical music, some genres have found support in Europe. For example, Drupad is extremely popular, perhaps more so in Europe than in, than in India, although I might offend uh, some people if I said so. But uh, yes, uh, support has been um, there for uh, Drupad. Uh, and there are also uh, sort of pockets in which traditional music has found support. But on the level of policy making, I don't think that much is happening, um, especially in, um, let's say, in, in very tricky situations where, for example, let's say, the exchange of art and culture between two countries like India and Pakistan, where there's a lot of shared heritage. I think, you know, we're, we're confining ourselves to largely to big events, and those events are really controlled by corporates, possibly corporates with, who also run the media. So uh, th these are very large business, um, businesses which also own a television channel and, and the, the leading publication, and they will make a big noise about how peace is in the air and you know these concerts will end the conflict between the two countries and that's it, you know, it's all starry-eyed and there will be an anthem, peace anthem, which will be commissioned at the cost of millions of rupees and the biggest uh, Bollywood star will come and dance to it and sing to it, but at the, yeah, yes, yes, and 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 then uh, at the same time, but you know the idea of actually uh, sharing that happens actually between individuals who are committed or small, you know. I know, for example, that a lot of work to promote Indian music is being done in Australia by individuals. I mean, one of the loveliest books on Sarod has been written by Dr. Adrian McNeil, and who has been, you know, who has been regularly presenting small concerts of, of Indian music. There is no big projects, there is no funding, but he believes it has to be done. And so he's doing that. And, and year after year, event after event, and taking from his own time. Similarly, across the world, I think there are all these lovely people who are really doing work without any of the policy makers even knowing that they, that they exist. There will never be an award for them, probably. There will never be any big PR agency, uh, you know, talking about their work. And yet, uh, I, I would say, thank God for all of them, because they really try their level best to, you know, to cut through red tape, 
through problems of support and funding. And I think that really is something that I find very, not just sort of heroic and missionary, but really which inspires other people to carry forth that work. And I think that is really very valuable work. Unfortunately, it doesn't get talked about very much. I think Bollywood has presumed what, what is beautiful Indian cinema, whether it's in Abu Dhabi, in Kerala, whether it's Satyajit Ray. Uh, with the hundred years of Indian cinema, um, uh, checkbooks are out open all over the world to bring events and the film awards related to India. Um, we're asking from 8 million to 16 million to come and perform. Again, the same Bollywood stars and all, all of the people. Whereas Indian cinema is, some of the Indian cinema we, we were talking this morning with Minakshi is, the most beautiful films have come out are not finding distribution in India. Um, and they are being picked up by some of the blue chip distribution names internationally. Which is, which is, which is sad because these films are, are representing pockets of regional, cinema, uh, regional India in all its authenticity. Anurag Kashyap, an independent director, actually got people from villages in Bihar and, and East UP um, to sing certain songs for his his quite commercial for the dance of Asipa because he wanted authenticity. Um, you know. So, so yes, I mean, in, in that, that effect, but, but I, I really differentiate between Bollywood and the rest of Indian cinema. Uh, because one is, is all about PR, it's all about hype, it's all about dancing at weddings to, to these concerts. And the other is all about telling a story. At the end of the day, cinema is about telling a story. And there are wonderful stories coming out of Kerala, out of Calcutta, out of all kinds of places out of Bombay, um, partly because of the, the desire to tell stories, but let us also accept the fact partly because we now have multiplexes and we, we now have some corporates who have got benevolent people who are sanctioning certain amount of funds to develop independent stories. Um, and there are theatres, multiplexes in India who have got um, just a director suite where, where okay, you know, you've got high-end art film, not not for consumption by masses, you can hire theatre and, and, and do that. So it, it's got both on and off sides. Mm -hmm. no, I just wanted to add, since you had mentioned Charles Korean, because uh, you had talked about um, the growing wealth and influence, uh, you know, India's growing wealth. And I wanted to say there's, there's a myth around that, uh, you know, when, because I work with urban development and I know that the urban development is choking I and mean, most cities are getting unlivable and it's going to get a lot worse in India. And I think that I wanted to actually quote something from Charles Correa and in fact I wanted to bring it I, so that in order not to misquote it, I brought it along. And there again I want to say where I think the real, where India can bring an influence in my field at least. And it's, 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 it's like the wealth that we, it just appears on paper, the GDP and all that growing, but the actual distribution is not taking place. In fact, people are, there are more slums and there are, the, the gap, the social segregation is widening in an unbelievable manner. And I think the fact that the population, even though the per capita consumption of an Indian average compared to anywhere else is quite low, whether it's even in vegetables, you know, or milk or coal or anything, you know, the per capita is really low. But the fact that we have that kind of population compared to other people makes us not have the luxury 
to develop in the way other people have. And, and what Charles Correa actually said uh, in this respect, which I find amazing, he gave it an interview on radio in BBC. He said, India offers the key to eco-friendly building of the future. In a country like India, you have very limited resources and therefore you have to use great ingenuity. And I think, in my field, um, I think India could actually re-establish new standards if, if, if it manages to manage its own problems. We could redefine what is acceptable as green because in all the developed countries and the buildings that they are rating as green buildings are such high consumption uh, actually that if you were to say that this, they're saying it's a global standard of green. If you were to apply this to every African, Indian and Chinese, I'm only mentioning these few places, there would be, you would need seven planets, someone has calculated, <laughs> if they were all green buildings according to how it's defined. So, obviously, if it is green, it cannot be an elitist thing, it has to be affordable and sustainable, considering the global resources, if you average the resources with the total population, then we, what is being called green in these countries is very brown in terms of the global picture. And so if India were to address this new standard with ingenuity and using less, we could really re-establish and redefine how green is green. So that's what I am looking forward to. I mean, the shift in perception of India as, as a, like you mentioned, as a global power, as a, a you know, growing economic and political power, um, and often what follows is an interest in its, its culture. And I think there's been you know, a pretty consistent interest in Indian culture for much longer than that, but there's, I suppose, more recent um, rise in certain middle class, and I guess within India, Indians being able to travel more widely and become bigger consumers. Um, I mean, do you see there's a mismatch between the soft power, I suppose, and the more the hard power. And maybe, like you mentioned, through policy, is, is there potential there to influence, influence that or to have more input? Yes, certainly policy would make a big difference. And policy that, could, that would first have to review what has been in place for so many years. Unfortunately, uh, culture policy has not been reviewed. What was relevant maybe uh, 60 years ago needs to be now reviewed and, and reassessed about how, in, uh, what an impact it has made or has it made an impact at all. I'd also like to say that in the area of education, uh, the arts have been neglected and culture has been neglected. Um, the general Indian, the average Indian parent believes that art and culture are at best themes that should be uh, you know, given to children during their leisure time and at, that is not serious stuff that is going to bring, bring them a decent livelihood. And therefore you have the largest number of children who learn, who interact with some kind of artistic activity, possibly because granddad or grandmom or mommy or daddy wanted them to. And in school, it's all right if you can say that, you know, you won a contest on television. But artistic activity as or art as a companion through your life is not encouraged. Mm -hmm. and, and I think uh, we need to have a really vibrant arts education program. And I think much can be learned uh, about this from other parts of the world. 
how we can integrate that into mainstream school education. And that is a challenge because um, when I say mainstream school education, it would mean school education for millions of children, some of whom don't even have a school building. It's possibly school, as I was told once, was, was the space between two trees where 50 children of different ages were brought together or sent, and one single teacher was teaching them everything. So the government of India has made uh, lots of policies, including one called the Sarva Shiksha Abhyan, which gives uh, education to every child till a particular stage. But at the same time, the inclusion of the arts in that and the ability to, to, to inculcate the ability in every child to enjoy some form, form of art and culture, that remains really something that we haven't looked at very seriously in a long time. It's fortunate if in our own homes we have people who respect art and culture, or it's, you're fortunate if you go to a school where um, the principal or the headmistress feels that this is something that should be encouraged. Otherwise, it's really not a, a, a part of a school ch child's uh, life. And I think that is unfortunate because unless you include that, and unless you uh, really build that over the years, I mean, after all, when you learn mathematics, you don't become a mathematician when you leave school. So why should anyone expect a child to learn music and then become a star when they leave school? But just the idea that arts and culture will enrich your life and not just do lip service to it, but actually mean that, I think that would really make a huge difference. And I think much can be learned in the way I, I love the space and I saw how school children were coming here uh, and I saw all the lovely publications that Goma has done and I felt I'd love to you know, be back in school and visiting uh, here again. No shot in Paris or New York. No dancing ladies. There was no big houses or helicopters landing on rooftops. Why would I go and watch something I can watch outside? And then the final answer, and it was only 16 reels, because in India, even if you're illiterate, you look at the number of reels to make sure you're getting the best value of your buck, and the film is at least three hours. So it's all escape. And the escape is actually quite uh, quite an interesting part that many people are not talking about, why there is a disparity in the two types of films, and why this man was so uncomfortable when he saw the poverty shot. Because it, because though there are now there is this very big social divide. Um, that people who live in one city, they think that the other city is in, in, invisible. And the, those guys think that those other people are invisible. You know, the one who's driving their car. And so there are two worlds existing in different cities, in different aspects of the city. So they don't have the same rights to the same city, actually, in it's, Indian it's, cities. Uh, I mean, it's, it is a it's, real problem. It is a major problem. It's, it's two <laughs> Indias, and I forgot to the name of the scholar of Pennsylvania, wrote a long article, but the end of the article was just brilliant. There was a housemaid who had gone to Bahrain and had lost her passport. Thank you so much to our fantastic panelists. It was a wonderful discussion. So please join me in thanking Shubha Mehta. I'd now like to invite Dr. Ashutosh Misra from the Griffith Institute to give you a Hello. Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, Namaste, Tatriya Kaal, and a very good evening. And Adam as well. Uh, it's a profound pleasure to do the vote of thanks on behalf of the Institute 
In the light of the ongoing India-Australia relations debate under the rubric of the unfolding discourse on the Asian century in the academic and policy circles, ladies and gentlemen, one critical knowledge gap has been identified, and that is the lack of the awareness and knowledge about each other that has been hindering a robust India-Australia engagement, and that needs to be fixed. And you will agree that events like this are perfectly suited to enhance our knowledge and understanding of each other, which will add a last to a relationship in the end. You will agree with me that uh, our uh, three eminent presenters this evening had done a wonderful job in presenting their perspectives on soft power in their own signature side. Uh, people around the world may not know who the Indian Prime Minister or the President is, but they would certainly know who Shah Rukh Khan or Aishwarya is. Sorry for naming Shah Rukh Khan again, yes sir. They may not know where the Indian Parliament is situated, but they would know where the Parliament Hall is. They may not know the context of the Indian foreign policy, but they can certainly sample some tunes from the little Bollywood block herself from the Europe. They do not know how many states are there in India, but they will certainly know how many centuries of Indian federal school. I think this is the power of soft power. As this uh, Mutil talked about common policies, ladies and gentlemen, government policies, uh, hard power shapes government policies for the short period. It is the soft power which shapes and changes people's views and attitude in a lasting manner. And that is what influences in the end government policy in any sector, democratic and non-democratic. Now more and more people are talking about soft power. We all have read the book by Dr. Shashi Tharoor, Facts in Vita, and the Elephant Tiger and the Self Point, which has captured the contours of soft power so wonderfully. Before uh, I, uh, I end my word of thanks, I would like to share just two quick anecdotes, uh, Shivaji. First is, uh, we, my wife and I, we were in Canberra recently, and many of you would know here, we are going to be the new parliament. And the new parliament in the central hall, there's a huge artwork on tapestry done by an indigenous artist here, who had done a painting on the tapestry of an Australian forest, and which was finally selected and was put in the parliament. It's a wonderful piece of art, and in the end, he did not sign it. And he said, this is a true expression of the art. And I think this is what we require. This was a wonderful gesture on this part. Ladies and gentlemen, I would also like to thank uh, the Griffith Asia uh, Perspective Asia Partners, the Australian Centre for Asia Perspective, the Gallery of Modern Art, and Queensland Art Gallery. And we are proud of Perspective Asia to be part of Queensland Conservatorium to the University and Counter India Festival. For this, please also allow me to uh, express our sincere gratitude to our moderator this evening, Rasal Sora, who is also the head of the Gallery of Modern Art, and uh, for moderating this uh, evening, uh, the, the session uh, so wonderfully and skillfully, and for his unstinted support to the Perspective Asia series over the years. I also want to thank the Honorary Council, uh, General uh, Arpana Singh, for being here with us this evening. And let me also thank uh, Ms. Natasha Wari for organizing this event with such finesse and all the enormous good chair, Natasha. Thank you very, very much.
And in the end, last but not the least, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Indonesia, I want to thank each one of you for being able to dodge the prison rush traffic <laughs> to be to be here uh, to be here uh, with us and also for your insightful comments, which has significantly enriched the discussion this evening. And by being there, you have just added plus to the power of soft power. Thank you all very, very much. And in the end, as a token of our gratitude to our uh, eminent speakers this evening, we have got a small gift. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.